All right, guys, we'll give it a few uh, minute or so for people to trickle in. Sorry for running a tad late. All right, I'll get started with an introduction. Uh, my name is Jacob. I run the video department and uh, nachi.org slash webinars uh, here at Enternachi. Um, today we have on Sean O'Leary from floodproofing.com. Um, and uh, Sean, if you want to get started and just give an introduction and uh, I'll let you take it from here. Absolutely, Jake. Um, I'll go ahead. I'll introduce myself, uh, Jake. In the meantime, if you can allow me to share my screen, I'll pull the PowerPoint up. Absolutely. But thank you very much. Um, I want to thank all of our attendees here today for participating. Um, this is a presentation I've been looking forward to for a little bit. Um, typically, I deal with architects and engineers on their floodplain design uh, for structures, but getting to speak to home inspectors today is definitely going to be a treat here. Uh, with that being said, I'll go ahead and I'll get started. Um, Jake, to confirm, you can see my title slide here, correct? Correct. Yes, I, we should All be right. able to see. All right. Perfect. All right. So as I mentioned, ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm going to introduce myself again here in a second, but typically I present to architects and I present to engineers. Okay. These are people designing into the floodplain, um, whether it be a residential home or a commercial uh, project. And if you see here, the title slide that my marketing team here at floodproofing.com has developed, it's always one I like spending an extra minute on just to kind of showcase all the options that are out there when it comes to floodplain design. Um, I'm sure many of us are familiar with flood vents and maybe even the traditional flood logs. But over the course of the last decade or two, there's been uh, some advancements in the technology and the systems being used uh, from things like standard door barriers, custom perimeter flood barriers, um, and even some passive systems that actually come up out of the ground or flood windows that are rated to handle um, flood loads and debris impact. So over the course of, like I said, the last decade, floodplain design really has um, gained a lot as technology has advanced. So with that being said, um, here's all my contact information. Uh, Sean O'Leary, I am a certified floodplain manager and business development representative here with floodproofing.com. We're a national distributor and manufacturer of floodproofing products. A little bit of background on who we are. About 20 years ago, we began as smart vent engineered flood vents, okay? It's the leading, it's the best selling engineered flood vent out there on the market. For those of you that are inspecting homes in the floodplain, if you're familiar with my company, it's probably going to be through SmartVent. Um, at the same time, we have the Risk Reduction Plus Group. As we were developing engineered flood vents, installing them in residences over the last 20 years, we saw a need to assist these homeowners in securing lower premiums uh, than what they were paying. Flood insurance is one of those um, insurance premiums, there's not a ton of, of commissions in there. So a lot of insurance agents don't pay too much mind to it. Um, and we saw as people were installing our smart vents, they were not seeing their premiums reduced the way they should have been. So we developed the Risk Reduction Plus Group as a way to help these homeowners secure those lower premiums by actually taking that second look at the elevation certificate, making sure that they were properly vented 
and whatnot. Now, about five years ago, we developed floodproofing.com. Floodproofing.com is where we run our manufacturing and distribution for all those flood barriers that you saw there, okay? We're not gonna talk too much about some of the barriers today because they're not to be used on residential construction. I will end with that um, kind of as some sandbag alternatives, but that's what we go by today is floodproofing.com. And then the flood design team, that's the team I'm actually on here at floodproofing.com. This is the team that works with the architects, works with engineers. We provide complimentary takeoffs and assessments. We work with them on the design to make sure that their structures are meeting the uh, floodplain codes and criteria. So with that being said, today's course agenda, okay? We're gonna describe floods and, and what floods do to buildings, the potential hazards to them. We're also gonna talk about the recent update to the National Flood Insurance Program, also known as risk reduction, or excuse me, as risk rating 2.0. In talking about that, we're also gonna look at realtor.com's flood factor and the more educated home buyer when it comes to purchasing homes in the floodplain. And I really, I, I threw this section in to this slide deck because I think as home inspectors, you're gonna start seeing more questions as realtor.com and some of these other home buying websites start trying to educate potential home buyers on different risks and factors and whatnot when buying in the floodplain. So we'll, we'll talk about that for a couple of minutes. We're gonna talk about the differences between engineered and non-engineered flood openings. We're gonna talk about building, uh, we're gonna analyze the role of building compliance and how it can help lower flood insurance. And then we're gonna go ahead and conclude this today. All right, so some basic terms that you'll see today, some different acronyms. There's base flood elevation and design flood elevation, okay? So base flood elevation is also known as, you know, the elevation of the 100-year storm is what it's commonly referred to, okay? But the 100-year storm really translates to what the 1% annual risk is of floodwaters reaching that height. So down along the coast here on the right-hand side, you see I have a flood map of Cape May. And you'll see a couple of different zones there. And the most common one you're gonna see is zone AE, which has EL11. EL11, that's elevation 11. That means that any given year, there's a 1% chance that FEMA estimates floodwaters will reach eight feet above sea level here. If you are in a riverine area, if you're somewhere in the Midwest or Colorado or whatnot, these numbers are going to be much higher and you're going to experience floodwaters coming off a river. But nonetheless, this is the annual 1% chance that floodwaters could, could come in and, and hit that. Now, the design flood elevation, this is taking the base flood elevation. It's also adding freeboard to it. Any municipality, if they choose to, can add freeboard, meaning whatever the base flood elevation is, they're gonna maybe tack on an extra foot or an extra two feet. And they want residential structures built to that height. Or if it's a commercial structure, they're gonna require flood barriers to be built up to that height. So for instance, here again in Cape May, elevation might be eight, that's the 1% chance. So homes in um, Cape May are to be built at elevation eight feet above sea level. But if Cape May tacked on an extra two foot freeboard, they'll actually have to be built 10 feet above sea level. Now the different types of flood risk, there are flash floods, coastal floods, river floods, the urban floods and polluvial floods. Okay, this is the, the, general, um, the, the general guidelines for what types of floods you can have. And all of these floods are, are common. They could all be happening at the same time. 
I live up here around the New York metro area, okay, over here in New Jersey. And we just had Hurricane Ida hit this past September. Now, Hurricane Ida came in as a coastal flood down in the Gulf. However, what by the time that it hit up here around the New York City area, it inundated the area with seven inches of flood, causing flash floods, okay? But at the same time, there were many creeks and rivers overflowing, resulting in river floods. And because of New York City being the metro capital that it is with all the concrete and whatnot, there weren't, there, there wasn't actual ground um, and meadows and woods and forests to soak up this, this flood water. So as a result, it was a flash flood, a riverine flood compounded by an urban flood because none of this water can go and soak into the ground. So these are the different types of flood risk. Floods happen everywhere across the country. You don't have to be in a flood zone to realize um, the potential flood hazards. Heck, just during Hurricane Harvey in Houston, 80% of the structures that did flood during that storm were not actually in the flood zone. They were in an X zone, as we say. All right, so what actually happens during a flood to a structure? What happens to a home here, okay? So during a flood, you're gonna have hydrostatic and hydrodynamic forces, okay? You're gonna have um, the hydrodynamic force. This is the actual force of moving water, okay? So this is gonna happen um, along the coast. You're gonna have wave action, or maybe you're around a riverine and you're gonna have this moving water from the river coming up and over, okay? So that's gonna be one force. But you're also gonna have hydrostatic force. And hydrostatic force is when this water actually begins to rise against the foundation and it creates this positive and negative pressure on both sides of the foundation. So as water builds up on the exterior and you have your dry crawl space on the interior, that's a negative pressure. You have the positive pressure from the exterior potentially causing a foundation collapse. Because as we know, foundations are built to accept a load vertically. They don't have the same type of strength to withstand that hydrostatic pressure coming in laterally, okay? So a couple of pictures on the right-hand side gives a good idea on what could potentially happen to a foundation during a flood. Now there's a the couple of industry trends. These are things that have happened just over the course of the last two years. So FEMA has gone and updated technical bulletins one, three, and six. All of these have happened since March of 2020. And as we know, March of 2020 was right when the pandemic was hitting us. So technical bulletins one, three, and six are relatively new. There are still some code officials out there that are not up to speed on this. Um, and I can tell you that just because I present to many of them. Um, technical bulletin one is the Bible when it comes to wet flood proofing. So any of your homes across the country, if they are built in a flood zone, they are supposed to be built up to the FEMA Technical Bulletin 1 standard. Now, the National Flood Insurance Program recently rolled out FEMA's Risk Rating 2.0. This came about in just this past October, okay? It's brand spanking new, and we're going to get into that in just a couple slides. As I mentioned earlier, we also have Realtor.com's Flood Factor. We're going to get into that in just a couple slides as well. And then also, many cities across the country are starting to update their floodplain ordinances. Now this doesn't necessarily affect an existing structure, but this absolutely affects um, any new structures um, that are being built in the flood zone as they're starting to adopt these technical bulletins that I just mentioned above. 
When it does come to floodplain construction regulations, all the documents that you see below, Technical Bulletin 1, requirements for flood openings and foundation walls. Technical Bulletin 2 are flood damage resistant materials. These are for the areas that could potentially flood. You don't wanna have like things like normal drywall in there. You don't wanna have carpet, okay? All that could flood, water recedes. It allows for things like mold growth and whatnot. So Technical Bulletin 2 is all about what type of flood damage resistant materials you can use. And then Technical Bulletin 3 being dry requirements. All of these, along with the International Building Code and the International Residential Code, resort back to ASCE 2414. This is the standard, okay? This is how flood um, engineered flood vents get calculated. It talks about how strong foundations need to be, things like um, the PSI of concrete and rebar and whatnot. Everything resorts back to this document, ASCE 24. 14. And this is what code officials should be enforcing in their communities. Now, risk rating 2.0. For anybody that has ever bought a home in the floodplain, um, have had friends own in the floodplain, have any idea about um, flood insurance, okay? Technical bull, or excuse me, the National Flood Insurance Program used to rate structures based upon an elevation certificate. So on that elevation certificate, it would identify the flood zone, it would identify the, the crawl space grade, it would identify the first floor grade, okay? Lowest adjacent, highest adjacent, everything like that. It would also identify flood openings in the walls, okay? The actual crawl space of the structure. And depending on how that elevation certificate was filled out and the data provided, that is how you would go about getting a flood insurance quote. The challenge is over the last couple of years, the NFIP has been losing some of their better clients, their better homes to the private market because the private market wouldn't necessarily care as much about elevations. It would look at historical data. It would look at future data, things like that, okay? So now FEMA has adopted a similar type of thought with risk rating 2.0. So instead of looking at the elevation certificate, they now look at what the home's value is. They look at the distance to the flood source. Okay, is this on a barrier island? Is this inland? Is this directly bordering a flood zone? Or is it um, you know, a, a tenth of a mile or a quarter of a mile away from it? And then as well as the historical data. So what it's doing is it's going to go and it's going to reward structures that are further away from the flood zone, um, homes that are directly in the flood zone, whether you're elevated or not elevated, um, you are going to be rated the same. So potentially if you have a home that is built on top of a garage, right? And you have maybe 10 feet above grade and your next door neighbor is a slab on grade home, but because you're both in the same zip code on the same block, FEMA is now gonna rate you the same. Um, so a lot of people that have elevated in the past are not happy with this. But ultimately, the SRL and the RL, the severe repetitive loss and repetitive loss structures, they're going to be the ones paying the price. These are the people that have flooded multiple times. Um, they're the ones that are going to see their, their premium rate increase, um, their premiums increase the most with risk rating 2.0. Now, moving on, I apologize, this is the wrong title for this slide, but we're now talking about 
uh, Realtor.com's new flood factor. So with the rollout of Risk Rating 2.0, the First Street Foundation partnered up with Realtor.com and they developed this tool online. Okay, so you can go to Realtor.com and you can type in whatever address or community and go and click on a home. And if that home is in a flood zone, you're going to be able to find a property flood risk assessment. So it's this revolutionary new tool. Any prospective home buyer can hop on Realtor.com and find this. It's going to rate your property on a scale of one to 10, okay, with 10 being the riskiest for potential flood. And it's also going to inform the buyer whether flood insurance is going to be a requirement or not. Now, I can't tell you growing up on a barrier island and as well as working in the flood industry, I can't tell you how often I speak with a potential home buyer that, don't, that doesn't realize that flood insurance is going to be needed when purchasing a structure. Okay, so Realtor.com at least does a good job of, of spelling that out when somebody is searching for a potential home. So I gave a quick example here. This is a project uh, or it's a property in Margate City, New Jersey, down here along the Southern Jersey shore. Um, this is a property that's being rated six out of 10. It's in an AE zone, um, doesn't have any history of flood damage or whatnot, but due to rising sea levels, due to being how close it is to the potential flood source and whatnot, flood factor is rating this at six out of 10 for potential flood risk. Now you can also gain some further information from flood factor. This has nothing to do with, with insurance, okay? This is just what somebody could potentially expect to pay over the course of time in flood damage. So you're able to plug in some additional information, things like a slab home, whether it's the basement or whether it's up on a crawl space, okay? How long you expect to live here for and whatnot, what the estimated property value is. And you're able to, to put all this into their little calculator here um, in order to determine over the course of time, what reasonably could you expect to pay in flood in, or in flood damage? So for this particular project over the course of four, uh, 30 years, it is estimating that this home buyer should expect to at least pay $30,000 in potential flood damage. Now I can tell you in the event of a hurricane, if this home were to flood, it's going to be much more than 30,000. If this home never floods, obviously it's going to be zero. So the flood factor and the First Street Foundation has their formulas on, on what they um, anticipate on an average. But this is all information any potential home buyer might be bringing to you, the home inspector, to say, hey, can you, you know, what, what ways can we possibly mitigate this damage? Well, flood factor goes one step up and they're gonna go ahead and they are gonna recommend a couple of options. Some of those options are as simple as adding foundation flood vents to wet flood proof a crawl space. And they even go as far as to suggest elevating a home, which for any home elevating could be anywhere from 100 to 150, all the way $200,000 plus to do so. So again, this is a gift from realtor.com, which unfortunately, you being the home inspector, I expect questions coming your way here in the near future if you are indeed inspecting homes in the floodplain. We're going to get into a couple of ways that you can help your clients, but I just wanted to spell this out um, as a new industry trend here. Now, there's also a couple of communities that are adopting these higher ordinances, which I mentioned earlier. 
Uh, one of them is flood reinspections. So down in Cape May, at the point of sale now, because all of Cape May is in a floodplain, the building official will actually drive out to these homes to inspect whether they have engineered flood vents or not. If they don't have engineered flood vents, they're going to go ahead and either make the new, the new home buyer sign an affidavit acknowledging that, or they're going to go and require uh, engineered flood vents get installed. There's also communities like Ventnor City, New Jersey, that is regulating the X zone. So if you remember, I mentioned a little earlier how Houston, during Hurricane Harvey, 80% of the structures in Houston did not fall into an AE zone. They were in what was called the X zone. So because they were in the X zone, they were not required to have foundation flood vents. They were not required to be elevated, and they were also not required to have flood insurance. So 80, potentially 80% 80 of the flood damaged homes in Houston didn't have flood insurance and they had no way of protecting their home. So there are communities like Ventnor that are gonna start enforcing these areas. And then lastly, we have another example from our friends at Sea Isle City. Sea Isle City is now requiring, um, at the time of new construction, there has to be a deed restriction placed on the property any part of the property, any part of the structure that is below the base flood elevation cannot be used for living space. Seattle City, New Jersey, about 15 years ago, was almost kicked out of the National Flood Insurance Program. And when that happens, nobody in the community can buy insurance through the National Flood Insurance Program. And the reason was the previous code officials were allowing people to build garages underneath their house that were below the base flood elevation. And then they were converting those rooms into bedrooms, into bathrooms, into game rooms, so on and so forth, which is a big no-no for FEMA. So what ended up happening was a new code official took over and they implemented this new ordinance with the deed restriction, okay? This deed restriction states that, hey, at the time of new construction, you can't build below here. So when you get your certificate of occupancy, don't expect to go and build a bathroom, build a game room, things like that, okay? And as a result, Sea Isle City is now considered a class three community and they get 40% off of their flood insurance premiums across the city, okay? Which is the best here in New Jersey. All right, so now we're actually gonna get into ways that you could potentially help your clients, okay? As you go out and do these home inspections and you get these questions asked, um, you're going to have the knowledge now on how to go and protect these homes. So the first thing we're going to talk about is wet flood proofing. And the types of enclosures that can be used below the base flood elevation, as I just mentioned with that example with Sea Isle, you can have crawl spaces, you can have full height enclosures and garages, and you can also have spaces used for parking, storage, and building access. And when you think about building access, okay, this is somebody that is elevated where you walk into almost a lobby or an atrium of their home. And this is just building access till you go up to the higher living area. So you are allowed to have all of them below the base flood elevation. In these areas, you have to have flood vents. And this is a requirement for building code, okay? So you have to have flood vents. They could be engineered or non-engineered, but a picture on the left-hand side is great. It comes straight from FEMA and it's inadequate flood venting versus adequate flood venting. And what you look at on the left-hand side is a non-engineered vent 
non-engineered vents as you're about to see can easily become clogged because they're not designed to be um, engine they're not designed to be flood vents they're just typically air vents so that is a great example of this positive and negative pressure on the foundation potentially causing a collapse like we see with these pictures on the right whereas when you have adequate flood venting okay a larger opening or an engineered flood vent you're going to allow that water to equalize pressure on both sides of the foundation so now as a result that foundation is only accepting the load vertically coming from the house into the ground it's not having any hydrostatic pressure forcing it in or out. So that is the actual purpose of a flood vent. Flood vent basics. Flood vents are designed to relieve pressure rather than resist, okay? We're not trying to keep water out of a crawl space or a garage. We're trying to allow water in so that way the equalization of pressure occurs. It has to be automatic. There can't be any sort of human intervention. And you'll, you'll see a good example of that in just a second, okay? So because it's automatic without human intervention, we call that passive, okay? It passively equalizes that hydrostatic load. And it's also gonna be bi-directional. So when water comes in and fills up that area and then the floodwaters recede on the exterior, it'll do the same. That flood vent is gonna go ahead and open towards the exterior, allowing that water to exit. And again, all this comes in FEMA Technical Bulletin 1. So here's an example that we like showing, okay? This is an older example. This doesn't take into account risk rating 2.0 yet, because again, risk rating 2.0 for insurance purposes doesn't matter whether you have flood vents or elevation or anything like that. It just looks at the home's value and where it is in relation to flooding, okay? But from a building code standpoint, this is still relevant. So what we have here is a project out in Peoria, Illinois, right on the uh, Peoria, um, or excuse me, the Illinois River. And the base flood elevation for this property is 460 feet above sea level. But because this structure was not built with flood vents, even though it's elevated, even though that whole ground floor there is just being used for storage and parking, what ends up happening on the elevation certificate is the bottom floor of this is being rated at 451 feet, okay? So technically this home is actually nine feet below base flood elevation. However, simply by installing adequate flood venting, you can now take that entire ground floor out of the equation. Because you're relieving pressure on either side of that wall, you can now rate this property at the correct height of 460.69, you round that up to 461. So in the old days, this would have been a plus one NFIP rating. But again, nonetheless, for building code, okay, as well as for the sake of this foundation not collapsing, you're going to need to have these flood vents. Here are these flood vents in action, okay? Right after these vents were installed, a flood actually happened. These homeowners were able to walk around their garage, okay, without the risk of the home or the foundation collapsing because that hydrostatic pressure was equalized on either side. And again, an old example, but with these guys, they had a subsidized rate. They were paying about $2,000 a year. They should have been paying $9,000 a year, but with the retrofit cost and their new premium, these people actually paid 
to have flood vents installed compared to what their old premium was. But again, the biggest thing that they received here is peace of mind that their home is not gonna collapse in the event of a flood. So the two different types of flood openings, there's gonna be non-engineered openings versus engineered openings. The best description I can give here is a non-engineered opening is simply an air vent. It is a vent that is designed to allow airflow in and out, okay? Um, but it is not designed to basically handle floodwaters. So because they're not designed to handle flood, uh, floodwaters, FEMA has a way to calculate and surveyors have a way to calculate the net square opening of these. So basically they need to calculate one square inch of net square of net opening equals one square foot of enclosed area. Uh, the only thing that you need to know here, okay, before we get into all the math or instead of getting into all the math here, air vents are not designed to be flood openings. And because they're not designed to be flood openings and they're not passive, you physically need to break the vent in order for it to count. Now, when you're going out and you're doing a home inspection for somebody in the floodplain, okay, if it's not necessarily a big deal for them, it's not something that you need to go and call out. However, it's always nice to note that, hey, this structure is built with non-engineered openings. They could potentially, uh, during a flood, they could potentially clog with debris. And if you want them to count as a flood opening, you physically need to break them so that way they're constantly in the open, open area here. So here's this difference that we're looking at between an engineered flood vent versus non-engineered. The top picture is an engineered flood vent. The picture on the right-hand side kind of goes to show you that this flood vent will go ahead and swing open. It's gonna allow a much greater volume of water to come through. And thanks for, to it being an engineered flood vent and going through the testing that the International Code Council puts forth, each of these flood vents is rated up to 200 square feet of protection, all right? So if you have a, you know, a 1200 square foot structure, you're able to get away with six engineered openings. If you have the bottom air vent, okay, you can see there that little 0.5 inch, this is where the surveyors need to come and actually calculate the net square opening. So what you're looking at is 6.5 inches high by 0.5 inches wide. And you gotta go ahead and calculate how many of those grooves are there. And then you also need to physically break that open and close tab. You need to keep it open all times. What you end up doing is you do the calculations. This only accounts to 42 square inches. So with that is it's 42 square feet. So when you do that calculation, and this concerns itself the new building, again, a 1,200 square foot structure will only require six engineered flood vents. However, a 1,200 square foot structure will require 29 of these in order to be code compliant. And that's, again, that's why people like, like um, Cape May, New Jersey, will actually come and do these reinspections in order to make sure that there's adequate flood venting on the structure. Here are some pictures of unacceptable flood measures uh, and flood openings, I should say. So the picture on the top left is an air vent. You can see that tab there, that tab is still remaining. So this air vent could be open, it could be closed. And the fear is, in the winter or the hot summer months, people might go and close that, okay? So that way there's no airflow coming into their crawl space. Well, up here in the Northeast, 
if you go and close that air vent and we have a nor'easter where it potentially floods, that air vent is now clogged off. It's not allowing any floodwaters in. And now you risk the uh, potential of collapse. Pictures on the top right is another air louver. These have the temperature activated louvers in there. But in the event of floodwaters coming in and pressing against them, those can go ahead and close off. Bottom left is an air vent where people can actually go and put a screen over top of it. And then the last one, and this is the biggest point of contention, it comes in with garage doors. Garage doors are not passive, so they're not considered an engineered opening, okay? They actually need somebody to go ahead and open it. And most of us nowadays, we have garage doors that are used remotely. So we actually have electricity go and lift them. And in the event that the electric grid is out or we lose power, those garage doors are gonna stay down and now you're talking about potentially ripping a wall out or these panels of the garage ripping off, floating down and damaging your neighbors. And again, this is the big reason why non-engineered flood vents are not acceptable. It's because of the potential for these to clog. So if you have all this dune grass, or if you have leaves, if you have silt, if you have debris, it's gonna clog these openings. And now this opening that was designed to allow flood water in to equalize pressure, it's all for naught. OK, it's going to go ahead. It's going to clog. Pressure is going to start building. And now you risk the potential for collapse. All right. So now that I've bored you enough with non-engineered openings, we're going to get into engineered openings and what you could expect here. So the bottom right is a great graphic. It's a GIF that shows what an engineered flood vent actually does in the event of a storm. So it's locked in place most of the time. Okay, so no rodents or anything or no people are going to be able to go through this little 16 by 8 vent. However, in the event of a flood, floats will engage, or I should say floats will disengage the locking mechanism, go ahead, open the vent, and it's going to allow this flood water and debris to go on in to the crawl space, equalizing that pressure. Once again, these flood vents need to be mechanically operated and passive, okay? No human intervention at all. So whether you are on site or you have evacuated, these flood vents are there, they're automatic, they're gonna go ahead and work, okay? They're gonna go and reveal an unobstructed opening. They're gonna allow uh, floodwaters and debris up to three inches to go and penetrate that crawl. Great example here. This is a testing done by the International Code Council. You're gonna see this vent, once water disengages these floats, the vent is gonna go ahead and open. Now this water, okay, where, where there's an actual pump pumping gallons and gallons of water into this area is equalizing pressure to the extent where on the ruler on the left-hand side, this water stays between 13 inches and 14 inches above grade, okay? So it is allowing this flood water to enter the crawl space the same rate it is rising. And ultimately, once that water pressure equalizes and the water height equalizes on either side of this opening, both sides will then rise at the same rate. So that way there is no hydrostatic lateral pressure against the foundation. And here's just an example of this ICCES certification. Your engineered flood vents are gonna have this type of report. Bottom left-hand picture, if you're ever looking at a flood vent, you're going to look for this sticker with the ICCES logo on it. The vent is also going to have the model number 
and it's going to have what it is certified to cover. So once again, that example I gave a little bit ago, a 1,200 square foot structure, you're going to need six of these vents to be in compliance um, in order to, to meet that. Now, some additional things you might be interested in, okay, some flood vent accessories that are out there on the market. The first one we're going to look at is the flood vent ceiling kit. So if you have a client that has flood vents installed, maybe they're in a garage or maybe they're in some sort of conditioned space, whether it be storage or this, this foyer, okay, this building access, yeah, as an example, in this home. Maybe they have this area and they're worried about losing air loss through the vent, um, their energy bills are up. You can always install a flood vent ceiling kit. Flood vent ceiling kit meets the 2018 energy codes. And what it'll do is it'll prevent any air loss, but in the event of a storm, in the event of a flood, these homosote panels will go ahead, break on open, and allow flood water to come through that's already coming through the flood vent. Some other accessories that you should be aware of would be if you have a fire rated wall. Okay, now this is very important. If you're the home inspector and you're seeing that there is internal flow through of a structure, maybe you have a garage that is going in to this building access, or you have a garage that goes into storage areas, okay? Most of the time, you're gonna need to have some sort of fire damper there. Now, engineered flood vents, they take all this into account, okay? Obviously, we're, we're in 2021 now, building code is requiring this. So you can retrofit a fire damper with the trim and sleeve kit to make that flood vent through that wall. You can maintain that fire rating up to two hours or up to three hours. So this is another option. Um, this is something that you might notice during your home inspections where it, it should be required. And then lastly, maybe you have somebody with one of these higher end homes that is asking you about flood venting, okay? And what they could do, um, you know, number one on the left-hand side, maybe they want something that's a little bit more aesthetically pleasing rather than the brushed stainless look. So you can have powder coated vents you cannot paint engineered flood vents in the field. If you notice somebody is doing that, that, that's a big no-no there, okay? If you paint an engineered flood vent, you potentially um, mess with the mechanism, you mess with the locks and whatnot. Things could get stuck. They, uh, debris might not be able to push the vent open the way it's supposed to. So these flood vents need to be powder coated by manufacturers. The other example on the right-hand side is a flood vent that is designed specifically to go into a garage door. So some people can only vent through the garage door. Maybe they don't have access through other parts of the foundation. There are flood vents specifically designed to be used in, in garage doors. All right, we're gonna wrap up here with the different dry flood proofing methods. If you remember a little earlier, I mentioned dry flood proofing it's not technically allowed on residential construction. And what I mean is if somebody is building a brand new structure and that is in the floodplain, you have to have that home elevated, whether it be on a crawl space or, or elevated to the point where you have a garage underneath, okay? You're, nobody's building a slab on grade home below the base flood elevation anymore. However, we all know that as you're going out doing inspections, some of these homes have been there for 20, 30, 40, and you know, up to 100 years, okay? 
And it's not feasible that somebody's going to come in and elevate that home above the floodplain now. They're, they're buying an existing home. But maybe they have some flood damage in the past, or maybe they have some nuisance flooding and they're looking for different options on what they could potentially use. So the first one I want to show you here, this is our sandbag alternative, okay? This is a product out there on the marketplace and it's called the Dam Easy Flood Barrier. This is a product specifically designed with residential construction in mind, okay? It has no permanent anchors or, or anything. Nothing gets drilled into a door jam or into the walls themselves. This is a product that works totally off of compression in the door jam, and then it has a bladder that you pump up, and that bladder is what actually will seal any crevices or any cracks or whatnot in, in the door jam or in the concrete. You also see that picture on the bottom, okay? If you had somebody looking to extend this uh, to meet a garage or a slider or something like that, you can put a post between there and that post will have an anchor in the ground. That would be the only permanent fix that would come with a cap to go over top of it, ADA compliant caps. That way nobody's tripping over it. But this again, is somebody in a flood prone area, an existing structure, um, maybe they have a basement or something, and they're just trying to keep this nuisance flooding out. This product is good to handle up to 28 inches of water. Um, very, very popular in Europe. It, it's not as popular over here simply because when you're, again, when you're building new construction, you're not allowed to have any sort of dry flood proofing. Everything has to be wet flood proof for residential, but this is an option for an existing home. Just a couple other visuals to, to give you an idea on what this system would look like. And when I tell you deployment on how easy it is, okay, this is something that gets stored underneath a, a bed or in a closet. And when it comes time to deploy, you actually go and you put it into the door jam and you, you, you crank the ratchet there and you can walk away. And when I say two minutes to deploy this system, it's two minutes. That picture on the right-hand side with the post, you're probably looking at about a 10 minute deployment right there. And now this person can go evacuate or at least keep floodwaters out during a nuisance storm and protect whatever is on the other side of those barriers. Some other more robust options, these are less common for homes because typically now we're talking about anchors that actually go into the walls. So this is primarily only used for structures, for commercial structures with CMU block or concrete uh, poured walls, but this could potentially be used on some homes, especially masonry homes. I just wanted to throw this in here just for visuals to give you options. Anything we look at from here on out would absolutely be speaking with a professional to see if the home is designed to handle any type of flood load. We have the granddaddy of them all, which I call, uh, these are flood logs. Flood logs have been around forever. Uh, most, most people, when I describe what a flood log is, they say, oh, just like Lincoln logs. Okay, so yeah, we have our Lincoln log system here where you actually will assemble the panels in a groove um, or in, in a gasket that is permanently mounted to a building. At the same time, there's also flood panels. Okay, so flood panels are just like flood logs, a little bit different, a little bit lighter, um, not as invasive and intrusive into the structure. This oftentimes, especially after Hurricane Ida, this was 
ordered a ton by resident uh, residences up here in the Northeast. Um, it's it's a, becoming more and more common. It's not something that, again, is going to be allowed on any new construction, but from a retrofit standpoint, in order to prevent the next flood from potentially uh, going into a residence, we do see more flood panels being used. And then the very last type of product that you could potentially deploy would be a perimeter system, okay? A perimeter system is, is just that. It's almost like you're creating a temporary retaining wall or a temporary levy around a structure. Now, this has been deployed around a, a residences before. You see here, this is a home down in North Carolina where due to new construction on the road and a culvert that they had being too small, Anytime there's a massive inundation from uh, rain or a hurricane, really a hurricane, this home would experience uh, flooding. And this homeowner went, purchased this perimeter system. Myself and my team went down, deployed it for her. Uh, we trained her and her sons to do so. And we had four people deploy this system in the matter of two hours. We were able to disassemble the system, put it on back, um, she has since deployed it twice around her structure with the help of her sons. Okay, so this is something, it is common, um, it could be used, but this primarily you're going to look at a home where it has many openings or maybe you have, again, look at this one, you have a garage, you have an office, you have the home itself, you have a shed. So this was just, uh, it would have been a ton of openings or you just wrap the entire thing around with a uh, type of flood barrier like this. All right, so in conclusion, all right, floods are the most costly natural disaster that we can, we can possibly experience because floods will affect every home in that community and floods aren't necessarily going to stick to just one community. You have a hurricane, you're talking about dozens or dozens of communities or at least multiple states, okay? So the National Flood Insurance Program was forced to evolve itself. So as a result, you have people like realtor.com they're starting a new trend of educating these potential home buyers. And this is a trend that we expect other home buying websites to start enforcing. Engineered flood vents, they're designed to mitigate a home from flood damage, okay? Um, and then potentially lower their flood insurance premiums. Some private carriers right now are accepting fl uh, engineered flood vents over non-engineered flood vents, so there could be a, a credit there in the private market. Dry flood proofing is not going to be code compliant for these residential buildings. However, on existing structures, we do realize that dry flood proofing with the barriers that we just looked at are better alternative compared to sandbags. And as home inspectors, you can add these tools and this knowledge and these recommendations to your services to differentiate yourself from your competition. So I wanna thank you for having me here today. I, I hope I didn't bore you enough. I know I got you out here in time. So, so I you know, wanna thank you all for hopping on today. Here is my contact information. Should you ever need to contact us? Should you ever have any questions? Should you have a client with um, the potential need for any of these engineered flood vents or the barriers that we just discussed today? I'm more than happy to help them. 
Um, and again, if you have any questions or you want to run some thoughts by me, please, by all means, reach out to me, shoot me a text, whatever. I'm more than happy to help. And Jake, I want to thank you as well for hopping on here today um, and being the host. Absolutely. Uh, Sean, thanks so much for presenting today. Uh, if you joined uh, this webinar late or have a friend that missed out on this webinar, uh, we will be posting a recording of this session on nachi.org slash webinars. That recording should be up on the webpage later today. Uh, Sean, just for you to know that as well, uh, that your webinar will be up on our webinars page later today. And uh, Sean, thanks so much for uh, coming on today. And uh, for everyone attending, uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you at the next webinar. Awesome. Happy holidays, everybody. Take care. Have a good one. Bye.